I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I've never had a temptation to leave the Midlands. Call me stupid, probably, because probably lots of people would. I say, you should have gone to London. Pauline Black, the Queen of Scar, though she's far too modest to ever call herself that. She might have been born in Essex and went to school there, but Pauline, who still tours with her band The Selector, is proud to say she's made in the Midlands. I just think people are very much more down to earth. They say things as they are and, and tell you to your face what they think. Pauline has taken her music across the world, won awards for her acting. Yet her most treasured memory is of hauling heavy musical equipment up the steep stairs of Horizon Recording Studios in Coventry. I'd never been near a recording studio before. And so it was just like walking into a magical place where obviously magical things happen. <laughs> This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. The Midlands. It isn't north, it isn't south, and despite its size, it just seems to have a smaller megaphone than other parts of the UK. I've been talking to some famous people from our bit of the world, offering them a bigger megaphone, if you like. How important is the Midlands to them? Are they glad to get out or relieved to return? Episode 2, Pauline Black. Child of an Anglo-Jewish mother and a Nigerian father, Pauline was adopted by a white couple and grew up in a very white part of England. Pauline came to Coventry in the early 1970s as a teenager to study at Lanchester Polytechnic and never left. Are we good to go then? 
So, Pauline, uh, welcome. Thanks very much indeed for doing the Made in the Midlands podcast. What does the Midlands mean to you? I think the Midlands means to me a place where I feel that when I came here to study initially, I got off the train in Coventry and I immediately felt at home. It's probably got something to do with the fact that I was born in Romford in Essex. <laughs> so any place seemed more wonderful, probably, than Romford in Essex back in uh, you know, the early 70s. But, uh, but that's how I felt. I had some preconceptions about it. And Coventry, where I live, just seemed to defy all those preconceptions. I think Midlands people are just much more real. People are very much more down to earth. They say things as they are. And, and tell you to your face what they think. And, and I actually value that as a performer. I think you have to value that because people are going to tell you anyway. <laughs> and uh, you might not necessarily like the answer. But I didn't really feel that particularly down south. Just give a flavour to us of, of what Romford was like at the time when you grew up then and the contrast that it made with Coventry and the Midlands. When you're young, you do nothing, do you, except go from your home to school and home again. And, uh, and that's what I did for far too many years without really exploring too much of the place. But I hardly ever saw another black person, let alone an Indian person or, or, or somebody from Pakistan. I just found the people there very um, racially unaware, let me put it that way. You, you put it rather less politely in your autobiography, don't you? Well, I did. Well, it was my autobiography, <laughs> so I could say what I liked. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I did. Uh, I, I am being quite polite, really. It reflected, I think, the values of Middle England at the time. You know, things were different then. We didn't have people, you know, champion... Black Lives Matter or talking about multiculturalism or any of these wonderful things that people talk about now. Nobody was interested in diversity. The, the guy who lived next door to me wore a bowler hat to go to work in the city. And they were sort of relatively pretentious people, we all thought, because we didn't think he had that great a job anyway. But that was the moment that I grew up in. <laughs> I can't imagine that in 1971, when you arrived in Coventry, that anybody went to work wearing a bowler hat. What was the city like at that time? When I first came here, I, I had uh, what was called sort of digs, I suppose. And uh, it was a very lovely couple who lived in um, Binley, which is an area of Coventry. And they were quite elderly, but he still worked. And it was a new estate, so they thought that this was really, really, you know, they'd come up in the world. And he worked, I, I think, at um, Herbert's at the time, um, which was a manufacturing, you know, toolmaking uh, place. And so they, they, they were just people who I kind of knew because my dad worked near Ford's um, in Dagenham. So they were similar, but different. And I just enjoyed that. I just enjoyed that whole kind of aspect. I've always sort of quite liked engineering. I married an engineer, so it was something to do with that. Your dad, Arthur, really approved of you coming to Coventry because it was a place of great motoring tradition. 
Yes, uh, and he absolutely loved that. He th- he thought that it was absolutely fantastic. I was going to uh, a polytechnic called Lanchester, and of course, he had all these dreams of this old Lanchester car and things like this. And um, so he knew, you know, if you said Alvis to him, if you talked about Sidley, and he, all of these things, Rolls Royce, those sort of misty eyes would would develop in my father. <laughs> he'd, he'd talk about it as though he was reading from some Latin hymnal or something. It was really weird. <laughs> and your mum appreciated the fact, apparently, that Lanchester Poly, as it then was, Coventry University as it is now, was mm-hmm. right next to the cathedral. Oh, yeah, she thought that was going to do me a great deal of good. <laughs> I mean, I'm not religious, but I actually do really love Coventry Cathedral, the new cathedral. Well, and the old one as well. But I mean, that is a ruin as such. But the juxtaposition between the two, I really, really enjoy. Um, but I think she thought that sort of, you know, a place where I was going to learn stuff that was next to godliness could only do me good because she was very, very old fashioned in her ideas. And I, I chose here because it was a hundred miles away from, <laughs> from Romford. And I thought, well, that's far too far for her to come and see me just casually on a day to check up on me. And, but not so far that if I really needed to go home to get a few bob or something like that, as students invariably do, that I could get on a train and I could do it. So it was uh, self-interest. <laughs> yes. Uh, I find it really fascinating that even in 1971, perhaps even before the term multiculturalism had even been coined, that was in the air in Coventry, in the industrial Midlands. And that was something that you immediately felt comfortable with. Yes, I did. There was a lot of mixing up here through the factories, but it was Young um, people who were going to school here, their fathers, a lot of them, you know, and certainly the people that ended up in the Selector, which is the band that I'm singer in, had come here possibly from Luton and uh, possibly from Gloucester because there were car factories there and obviously people moved around at that time. And I, I very strongly feel that if the Midlands hadn't had that kind of whole car industry that probably two-tone would never have developed in the way that it did. It would have developed somewhere else. Maybe Birmingham, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about the pre-two-tone music scene in Coventry, which is where you first learned to play in front of an audience. When I first came here to go to the Lanchester Polytechnic, there was a very, very thriving music scene. And there used to be a downstairs bar, townies, as people who were not students were called, they, they, they could go down there. So that meant there was a huge mix of people. It wasn't just students. It was, um, you know, young people who just worked around the town or worked in the factories, but all who had a common interest in music. And they used to have fantastic discos down there. But then you'd have the main hall and bigger bands that were touring bands. I did see MC5. down there they kick out the jams yeah and they played they played down there and that was just fantastic I didn't know who I was seeing really at the time but uh, you know from the days when I was around I mean there was for Led Zeppelin would play Tiffany's which is now the um the library and there was Coventry Theatre and I remember going and seeing the slits there but you know people would all go misty-eyed and talk about Jimi Hendrix playing there and things like this your love of 
Coventry as a city shines through as well as the Midlands more generally. So what is your Midlands masterpiece? Is it a place in Coventry? No, well, I suppose you could call it a place. It's actually a statue and it's called the Coventry Boy. And it was uh, it's bronze casting um, from a sculpture by Philip Bentham. And it now sits in front of uh, Lanchester Polytechnic, Coventry University. But people just pass it by. It's on Priory Street. It faces the cathedral. And people just pass it by. And I don't really think that they look at it. But it's worth searching out because this young boy has one shoe on and one shoe off. Statue does. Holding aloft in his hand is a diploma. And in the other hand is a spanner. And there is just something quite triumphant about him. It's a triumphal pose, you know, as though this diploma is like a sword. He's going forward or whatever. And it absolutely captured my imagination. And when my dad saw it, of course, it captured his imagination too. Because I'm of that era in 1971, when I first came to Coventry, that the Lanchester Polytechnic was built because it was supposed to be a shining beacon of young working class youth actually coming to the city, learning beyond apprenticeships, getting a degree, all of those things. And in those days, of course, we had free tuition, (laughs) which we don't have now, unfortunately. But I was a recipient of that. And I should have been much more grateful, I think, at the time because of that. Um, But yeah, it was free tuition and a grant as well. So my generation was able to take that up. And Coventry Boy, to me, symbolises all of that. And the shoe off, I guess, then symbolises the fact that he's come from nothing. The shoe on. Humble beginnings. Absolutely. Working class, humble beginnings. Yes. that That this wasn't... Um, something that was available to working class people. And my generation came along, um, which really was Tony Blair's generation, I think. We came along and, um, and took full advantage of that. And, uh, and then he took it away later. He's <laughs> relatively ironic. <laughs> I love the fact, though, that he, the Coventry boy has both a spanner and a diploma. This is not about education for some airy-fairy abstract reason. This is a symbol of applied education. I think that, for me, suggests something about the Midlands. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you, you, you can get a bit sniffy about sort of airy-fairiness or, or, or any of those kinds of things. I think any education is good um, because when you, when you go to university, basically you, you, you're trying to uh, teach people um, to look at the world and analyse it. You know, analytical thought, that's what it's about. Really what you study is, is probably relatively immaterial. But I've always liked the study of things. I mean, I came to study science, combined science. I'd always been fascinated by science. All, all of those things all come together, I think, in The Coventry Boy. And it's to go forward and do something practical practical in the world to change the world. Coventry was the first place where you really connected with black people, primarily initially in the NHS. Yes, after I studied at uh, the Lanchester for two years and I left and I, I joined the School of Radiography as it was then. 
and uh, and studied in in Coventry, and that involved sort of working in the local hospitals as well. But I I, I uh, very much enjoyed, I think, my whole experience of of working in the NHS. And like you say, it opened up the um, Caribbean community to me because I started, you know, meeting other nurses and and other professionals in in a hospital situation who I I found tremendously friendly and uh, and it was a great environment to work in. So what was the NHS like then? Just give me a little bit of a a flavour of, of your workplaces and, and how they felt to you. A, a friend of ours worked as a psychiatrist and he suggested there might be some jobs going there. And I, I applied and I was accepted and I turned up there and I think I was 18, 18 and a half, I suppose, at that time. And I was thrown into the psychiatric ward which is a locked ward it was um for ladies of in those days it was called senile dementia but i mean we would classify it as various forms of of alzheimer disease now and well at that age it was the most harrowing thing i think that i till until then that i had ever confronted and i have to say the place it was well run but it was truly appalling it was truly appalling. And all the changes that have been made since um, in psychiatric treatment of people, I, I think in you know, realising that mental health is something that has to be treated very, very differently than locking people up on wards and things like this. Um, I did, I think, two months of that. But it seemed like I'd lived an entire lifetime during that period of time. But I took that experience with me everywhere afterwards um, in the world. And it really shaped how I thought about things and how I thought about people who actually didn't have a voice. Because in those days, if you were in a psychiatric hospital, you didn't have a voice. You managed to get a few gigs as a folk singer just tell me about the process of being spotted and turning from a folk singer into a the queen of scar as you're sometimes known oh well that's i that, i don't call myself that i hasten to that <laughs> um but yeah that started while i was still working at Walsgrave hospital as it was then called and I used to frequent a pub called the Old Dyer's Arms, uh, which was run by a landlady called Mavis and her uh, long-suffering husband, Barry. And they used to run a folk club in the back room. And the Furies, who were a very famous Irish folk band, they would come down and we'd sit there after hours, as it were, and there'd be a little session in the back room. As it and I was down there one night And um, a local luminary called um, Dave Bennett, who ran this particular folk club, was asked somebody to get up and sing. And I think they sang Yellow is the Colour of My True Love's Hair by Donovan. And I remember thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Nina Simone did Black is the Colour of My True Love's Hair. Hmm, I could do that. Well, I didn't do that because I found out it was far too difficult to do. So, But anyway, to cut a long story short, I went home taught myself some chords on the guitar, came back the following week and just sang a song. And it was probably fairly awful, but I actually enjoyed it. Nobody asked me to leave. So I thought, oh, well, this is good. Um, And that led to obviously learning more songs, 
going to a different folk club and actually being paid. I was paid £10 for 10 songs and I thought a quid a song was pretty good if you were doing it as a hobby. <laughs> People might struggle to picture you as a as a strumming folky, some, somebody vaguely hippie-ish before oh, all that started. I was never a strumming folky. <laughs> I did have an afro, so I suppose I was ahead of my time in that way. But no, it's, what can you do? What can you do uh, if you're trying to start out... If you don't have somebody to accompany you, you better learn some chords on the guitar. And anything, as soon as you start singing it, even the most rocky song in the world, if you start singing it with the guitar, it sounds a bit folky. But I was never a folky like that finger in your ear sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and tell me about auditioning then for the selector. I don't remember it as auditioning. It was it was a little bit like we were all auditioning each other to a certain extent. Charlie Anderson, who was our bass player, he lived at a two-up, two-down in Hillfields in Coventry. And I was invited along to that. And I was told to go to this particular address in Hillfields. And I turned up and everybody who was in that front room at that time, you know, one of those places where you walk in the door and you're in the front room, um, ended up in the selector. And we agreed that we would meet up at a place called the Binley Oak, which was up near the football ground and in the back room there, because that's where you rehearsed in those days. And while I was there, I think that I had one song and we started working on it. And at the end, again, nobody asked me to leave. So it was a little <laughs> bit like, you know, it, you, by osmosis, I worked my way into, uh, into uh, the selector. I want to come to your Midlands memory now, which I think is associated with your musical career. Yes, it is. I think my most overriding memory is the selector were given a thousand pounds to go in and record three tracks. And one of them was on my radio. Too Much Pressure was the other and Street Feeling, which is, all of those are on our first album. And I had never been in a recording studio before. I'd never been near a recording studio before. And we were recording at a building called Horizon Buildings. And it was Horizon Studio. And it was uh, within this place. And it had this absolutely vertiginous staircase that we used to manhandle, woman handle as well. Um, a Hammond organ. If anyone's ever seen a Hammond organ and the Leslie speaker that goes with it, it's like your mum's sideboard doubled and uh, we used to have to get that up the stairs and into this uh, place which was well I suppose 70s decor it was all orange and brown as things were in those days and and it was absolutely amazing to me that you could go in a room that was all soundproofed and all quiet and you could sing and then when you came out this huge great big tape um, machine which had you know like two inch tape on it um, would have you on it and you'd have your own track and you'd, on the desk, it would say Pauline vocals. And so it was just like walking into a magical place where obviously magical things happened. <laughs> and that's, that's my uh, wonderful memory, I think, of, of, of that time when it was all good. We all loved each other in the selector. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it incredible that around this time and in this place, certainly around the West Midlands, you had 
the band who became The Specials developing and The Selectors' first single is a double A side with the band that became The Specials. You had the whole two-tone thing then emerging out of Coventry. You had Dex's Midnight Runners over in Birmingham drawing on the music of Black America. You had the multiracial reggae band that was UB40 emerging from Birmingham at the same time as well. I just find it really fascinating that this area was so keen to demonstrate its multicultural credentials and created some fantastic, enduring music. I don't think we were actually thinking about it in that way, that the Midlands went through a transition, mainly due to immigration and mainly due to the fact there were an awful lot of car factories here and that brought in immigrant labour. And of course, if you have immigration you're going to have children come (laughs) because that's what people do. And you're going to have quite a lot of miscegenation. And I'm a great fan of miscegenation. (laughs) I think everybody should be miscegenating all over the place because that's one way that you'll be able to work this whole, uh, you know, sort of black-white thing out. You've also got to remember that that, um, Bob Marley was coming over here and uh, playing at that time. So there was an awful lot of second generation black youth who were British black youth, as British as their peers, their white peers, who felt that they had to establish an identity of their own. What was British blackness? Not American blackness, not, you know, sort of the James Brown soul and all of that kind of aspect of it, but something that was innately ours. You know, earlier on, say in the late 60s, we had Tamla um, suddenly appearing on Ready, Steady, Go or Top of the Pops. And they were of a sort of deep fascination, I think, to any black kid who was growing up because we just didn't see black faces on the television. You might have had the black and white minstrel show, but let's not talk about them. You know, that, that was um, deeply irritating at the time. But as time went on, you began to see more black people, but they were they were American. And um, and I think that that is the thing about Two-Tone and the other bands that you mentioned. We were British and we were making something new, but we were, if you like, fashioning it in the way that we experience life. Black kids and white kids at school together, um, you know, young people going to nightclubs together and enjoying both kind of white popular music at the time and also black popular music at the time. There's always a crossover. And I've always felt that the best music is always a hybrid. And that's what Tudone was. Yeah. And a, a fantastic global export from the Midlands and representative, I think, of the best of this area. I'd like to think that um, Two-Tone and, and, and the other bands that were sort of on the periphery of it were, were, were the best of, of, of the Midlands. It's certainly very enduring. I mean, you know, here we are, what, 42 years later almost. And most of us can go anywhere around the world and get a good audience, you know, even far-flung places like Australia. And, uh, and it's, um, oh, let me think, Hawaii would be too even, you know what I mean? And, and do shows there and people turn up and they're like amazed, you know, like, wow, what's the Midlands like? And, and, well, I mean, they think the Midlands is London, but, (laughs) you know, distance is nothing to them. No, no, I'm sure, I'm sure you educate them. I'm sure you educate them, Pauline. 
It was an incredible couple of years. Hit records, top of the pops appearances, touring certainly many parts of the world. And you say that when you came back to Coventry after that whole massive explosion of two-tone and success for your band, that it was a culture shock. What did you mean by that? I mean, you know what record companies are like. It's like no expense spared. Oh, you want a Cadillac for your day off? Oh, have one, have one. You know, or have a Thunderbird to throw in as well. And and all of these, and you're off doing kind of photo shoots and things, and there's all pretty palm trees everywhere, and it's hot. And you get to meet Joe Strummer, and because they happen to be in town that day. All of those things that goes with, and I'm sure everyone who's ever been in a pop band has, 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 has had that happen to them. And then suddenly you're back in Coventry, you're still living in a two up, two down, and you want to go into town. And there isn't a convenient Cadillac that you can call up. It's the number 32 bus. <laughs> and, you know, that's how it is. And little kids come and knock on your door and they say, oh, hello, can we have your autograph? We thought you'd live in a castle. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, you know? <laughs> In the years that followed, you had a very successful acting career, won a Time Out Award for Best Actress in 1991. You're a TV presenter, as well as maintaining your musical output. There must have been a temptation to leave the Midlands and go to the centre of your industries, London. No, no, I've never had a temptation to leave the Midlands. Um, It's, um, I don't know. Call me, call me stupid, probably, because probably lots of people would say, you should have gone to London, you should have done this, you should have done that. But for a couple of years after the selector split up, and I used to spend probably four or five days a week in London, just staying in a friend of mine's house who were very, very kind enough to, 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 to let me stay. But I never liked the London lifestyle. I was never one of those people who hung around the wag club or had even a passing interest in anything new romantic because it was just full of new romantic people in those days or, you know, that whole kind of wham ethic that was going on then too. It just didn't interest me. So I just thought, hey, I'm going to go and do acting. And to do acting, I better start at the beginning, as it were. So I got my equity card and then off I was (laughs) for about 10 years. We've celebrated some of the positives that Two-Tone gave to Coventry, gave to the Midlands and, and ultimately gave to the world. But it would be dishonest, wouldn't it, and to pretend that life in Coventry or elsewhere in the Midlands at this time was completely harmonious and the selector, too much pressure, black and blue. <laughs> These are your songs. These are born out of experience. Yes, I I mean, it wasn't harmonious. It isn't harmonious now. But we have learnt, I think, to talk about the subject of racism. We talk about multiculturalism now in a positive sense. We talk about diversity in a positive sense. In those days, people didn't even talk about race. And you still had sus laws on the streets. And you you were, sorry, Pauline, to interrupt there. Mm. Explain, please, what sus laws were. But I want to hear the story about you being picked up by the police as well under sus laws yes sus laws it was an ancient 
ancient law that still abounded, basically. If you were on the street or there was a suspicion that you might have done something, then you could just be picked up and taken to the police station and questioned um, seemingly for nothing. You might be forgiven for thinking that possibly not too much has changed. But um, I, I, I think that in this past year, the conversation has definitely moved on. I was walking to work one morning and we had a big department store at that time called Owen Owen. And I was walking past there and suddenly this panda car just it drew up. Two female officers got out, asked me who I was, what I was doing and told me to get in the car. And I told them that I was on my way to work. And they said, oh, you won't mind, will you? So I I got in the car um, because remonstration didn't seem as though that was going to be um, listened to. We went to the back door of Owen Owen and one of the female officers got out, went in the door and came out with this um, nice white lady who then came to the side of the car, looked at me through the window and looked at me for quite a long time, and then she shook her head and went, and I thought, what on earth is going on? Nobody had explained to me why this was happening. And um, the officer got back in the car and said, oh, she doesn't recognise you. (laughs) I thought, recognises me for what? Um, And it transpired that there had been some shoplifting And obviously a person who had done it was a woman and of colour. And it seemed that you could just pick up randomly any woman of colour in Coventry at that time going about her business and take her down there. And I've always thought to myself, if that woman who came out to identify me had had a bad day, had got out of bed on the wrong side, was a racist, really didn't care, had seen far too many young black women, and she had nodded instead of shook her head, where on earth would I be now? And that has always stayed with me. And then these officers, to to rub salt into the wound, um, said, we'll take you back to your place of work and we'll come in and we'll talk to your supervisor. So you can imagine me, the only black person in the department, having two officers come in and explain why you, I mean, all people see is you, the police, and that must be trouble. And so I very much feel for anyone who has been harassed for nothing more than having the wrong colour skin in this country. Do you feel like a Coventrian? I feel like a Coventrian now, yes. Very very much during particularly this whole city of culture year um, that we've been through and being part of the opening ceremony of that and having this wonderful song to sing, which is about the river, the River Sherbourne, which is literally probably about... 100 metres from where I am at the moment. It just kind of rooted me and I thought, yes, people came to Coventry from outside and I feel part of that. I feel so much more part of Coventry than I do of Romford. Who is your Midlands hero? My Midlands hero? Well, 
I like to be forward thinking. You could have Shakespeare, George Eliot, all of these people with people talking about climatology and race in general. And the new person that has come on certainly my horizon over the past few years is a young lady of colour. She's of Pakistani origin. Her name is Zara Sultana, and she is the MP for Coventry South. I, I just feel that we have to encourage young people to get involved. If we want things to change, it's got to be new ideas, new people coming in. And she was 28 the other day. And I, I look back to myself, what was I doing at that age? I was running up and down the country sort of, you know, singing and all of those kinds of things. But this is a young lady who has the wherewithal to stand up in Parliament and talk about the things that matter to her. Um, and talk about race, to talk about colour, to talk about diversity. And I, I just think she's extraordinary. She will go forward and she will grow older, hopefully within Parliament, and she will effect change, and change is what is required. You mentioned a little earlier that as the selector and the whole two-tone movement were going around the world, and you might say you come from Coventry or the Midlands, and they thought that was London in many places of the world. <laughs> London equates to the UK. Do you think that the Midlands has an identity problem that people even within the UK don't quite get who we are? Well, yes, it's like anything. If you're in the middle of anything, you're never quite taken, I suppose, as seriously as maybe what we might like to be uh, thought of. Um, and but I think that the Midlands, it, it's got a very proud tradition. But mainly, I mean, we were the engine that ran this country. We made the engines that ran this country, both in cars and, you know, sort of long history of um, building canals, all of this kinds of things. I mean, that was that was the powerhouse that it came out of. And um, for me, I, I feel that you, you can't talk about that too much. Coventry having the status of Coventry City of Culture, I think will show to the rest of the people in the country and maybe internationally as well, that the Midlands is a definite place which has a, a particular perspective on this country. And it's got nothing to do with the North and it hasn't got anything to do with the South. It is essentially us. And I'll champion that until, you know, I pop my clogs. <laughs> Finally, have you got a Midlands manifesto for us? We love the Midlands, but how can we make it even better? How can we make it more recognised, acknowledged? What do we need to do? What's your, what's your thought? Oh, well, I, I don't have any sort of grandiose schemes or things like this, but I feel that climate change is the biggest thing on the agenda at the moment. And I just feel that we need to do more. Farmers, people who are associated with the wonderful rural idyll that is Warwickshire and, and many places in the Midlands as well. We need to get kids out into that countryside to experience it. If they're living in inner cities, kids of colour, people who've come here from other cultures. We should get them out there somehow and money should be put into that because these are the young people who are going to inherit all the things that we have done wrong, which has led to global warming. 
if we want to keep that pristine and, 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 and beautiful, we're going to have to radically change the way we think and the way that we live. Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The researcher is Molly Davidson, and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Pauline Black, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Our next edition is with Nuneaton-born, award-winning film director Ken Loach, whose wartime memories of the region have him close to tears. The neighbour came in and said, they've destroyed the cathedral. And sorry, it still gets me. It is extraordinary. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Ken and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd also love to know about your own Midlands masterpieces. Email us at madeinthemidlands at loftusmedia.co.uk Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it and please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021, proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da! When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.